After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the disciples thought that Jesus was about to free Israel and establish his kingdom in Israel. But Christ had other plans. Before Christ ascended into heaven, which is God's holy presence, he gave what is known as the Great Commission, a variation of Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Acts 1 verses 7 to 8 reads, He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have work to do until Christ returns. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you today. And here we are on week two of what will be at least 52 weeks. So another 50 weeks to go. So, so excited about this. And if you have your Bibles, you can take them and get them ready. Uh, Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 11 in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to share something with you. Uh, this is uh, Professor Rodney William Stark. He is a sociologist of religion. Um, he died just uh, two months ago at the age of 88. He was the author of over 30 books and over 140 scholarly articles. And he's written in all sorts of things, uh, prejudice, crime, suicide, racism, and even uh, city life in ancient Rome. He was also the winner of two Distinguished Book Awards from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. In 1996, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And if you haven't read it yet, I would recommend that you get it, The Rise of Christianity. And by the way, this is why it's a good thing to, to have your notebook open so you can keep notes and write these sorts of things down. So in it, in The Rise of Christianity, Stark argued that the incredible growth and spread of Christianity were because it offered more to people than any other religion. Now, as he's writing this, he is not a Christian himself. Everybody understand that? He's looking at it purely from a scientific perspective. You need to understand that. Because the thing that we hear time and time again, it's either you're going to believe in, in science or you're going to believe in Christianity. How many have heard that argument? Yes. Well, um, first of all, that is absolutely a false construct. That, that is not even uh, true. Uh, you ask any true scientist and he'll confirm that. Stark argued that the rapid growth of the church was in large part, now get ready for this, was in large part due to how Christians treated women. Isn't that interesting? This especially compared to the pagan treatment of women, which, uh, which of course led to more conversions and which led to the faith being spread throughout the world. The other thing about Christianity, historically, is that it prohibited abortions and infanticide, and this in itself uh, led to an organic growth of the church. And if you think that abortion is something that is just uh, unique to this to this millennium or to this century, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, this has been happening through the centuries. And uh, here's the other thing: people observe Christians and how they dealt with the plague, for instance, or how they dealt with persecution. This added credibility to the Christian faith. The rise of Christianity was so groundbreaking that it was in fact nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So it's big-time it's big stuff, people. He wrote all of this, and he's not a Christian. Now, in 2005, there's so many other excellent books that he's written, but I want to bring, uh, point out one book that is a, uh, of especially imp uh, great importance to us. In 2005, he wrote The Victory of Reason. And that's a book, if you are interested in understanding your faith, if you want to be confident about your Christianity, if you want to be confident about the power of your faith and about its importance in the world, then I would recommend you get this. The Victory of Reason is how Christianity led to freedom, 
capitalism, and Western success. The year before The Victory of Reason was published, so that would be 2004, Stark commented, I have trouble with faith, and I'm not proud of it. I don't think it makes me an intellectual. I would believe if I could, and I may be able to before it's all over. The Victory of Reason brought Dr. Stark to the attention of Chuck Colson. Some of you may remember Chuck Colson. He was on the staff of Richard Nixon. He was called the Hatchet Man. And at the time that he was the Hatchet Man, he was not a Christian. But as you know, Nixon was, uh, was he, if he didn't leave office, he would have been impeached. And uh, so many on his uh, staff actually went to jail, and Chuck Colson was one of those people. Just before he went to jail, in the midst of the pressure and the stress that he endured, he actually uh, found Christ, and he became a Christian. And then he had, he had a decision to make, because he was pulled up before the grand jury. He was questioned about his activities, and he could have lied. He could have, he could have just simply, uh, he could have excused himself, and he would have gotten away without, without a problem. But he knew that as a Christian, he had to tell the truth. Now, too bad he didn't become a Christian after the grand jury. <laughs> yeah. well, you get that? Yeah. So, but he, he, he became a Christian before that. He had to tell the truth. And he went to jail. Now, the wonderful thing is that in going to jail, it opened his eyes to the great mission field that, that is prison. And so he created a ministry called Prison Fellowship. It's, I believe, the biggest prison ministry in the world. Well, getting back to Dr. Stark, he, Chuck featured the victory of reason on his radio show. And, uh, and also, he made it required reading for people who are going through his discipleship training program. After the commentary on the radio, Rodney Stark actually called in and actually talked to Chuck Colson and thanked him for the kind words and the glowing tribute. And then he said, this is in 2007, he said that he had, in fact, finally come to put his faith in Christ and he publicly announced it in that year, 2007. What brought him to the place of conversion? It was after studying Christianity throughout history that brought him to the place that he recognized there's something very uh, unique about Christianity, so much so that he began to study the Scripture for himself, and he ends up putting his faith in Christ. So here we are, 2,000 years later, and... The church is now the third, it, it, it actually the th makes up a third of the world's population, if you can believe that, almost three billion people. Um, and the message and the achievements of the church have attracted not just the world's poor and needy, but in fact, many of the brightest and most educated people in the world. And if you would like, I can send you a list of of some of the most brilliant people in, uh, in many of the world's universities. And these people are, are uh, physicists, they're scientists, they're, econom they're uh, uh, economists, economists and, uh, and the world goes on. So how did all this happen? Well, let's take a look at what it says in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into the heavens, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday, he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. The book of Acts, in case you're wondering, is because many Pentecostals think it's only about speaking in tongues. 
And if you think that that's all that the book of Acts is about, well, you completely don't get it. The book of Acts is all about the continuation of Christ's work, which we read about in the Gospels. It's about the Holy Spirit at work through his followers, through the disciples. You need to understand that. Reading the book of Acts, we're informed and we're encouraged by the power of the gospel to transform people's lives in Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the world. Get it? Got it. Excellent. Okay, so let's begin with verse 6 and 7. And so here's what it says. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? The disciples thought that Jesus was now going to uh, overcome Rome. Uh, who knows what their imaginations came up with, but they were pretty sure that Jesus, now that he had risen from the dead, that he would evict Rome from Israel and that Jesus would set up his kingdom. They believed that the solution to all their problems was political power. We still think like that. We really see it in our neighbors in, in America. We see, actually see pastors and churches getting on board to advance the cause of certain politicians. And some churches advance the cause of the Republican candidates, and some churches get on board to advance the cause of the Democrat, that is the liberals versus the conservatives. But here's what you and I need to understand today. The solution to the world's problems is not Trudeau, nor is it Pierre. The solution to the world's problems is not Trump, nor is it Biden. And we make a big mistake if we believe that the solution to the problems of this world are political power. You and I need to understand that the solution to the problems of this world is still Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm glad you said amen to that and didn't throw tomatoes at me. <laughs> you need to understand that. Now, it's true that some political parties, some political candidates, they would have values that are more in keeping with or in line with Christianity. But you and I need to understand something. We are not, we are not a people of this world. Does everybody understand that? This world is not our home. We belong to another kingdom. It's called the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, whatever, whatever uh, title you want to use. So you and I understand this. They were thinking that their deliverance would bring an end to the reign of Rome. And it was terrible, I'm going to tell you that. The, the reign of Rome over Israel was a terrible thing. If you, if you Google it, BibleHistory.com says that the Roman tax on a man's income was 1%. Now, that doesn't sound like very much. 1%, I'd say, I'd take Roman rule <laughs> rather than uh, the, the rule that we have here in our country, which is, is uh, so much more. But then it wasn't just 1%. It wasn't just the head tax. There, was, there were other taxes. There were uh, customs taxes, import taxes, export taxes, toll bridge taxes, crop taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, and special taxes if there was going to be a war or a campaign. And so these poor Jewish people, they were, they, everything they worked for, over half of it was taken from them. And to make what matters worse, there were certain Jewish people that aligned themselves with Rome so that they could get rich. They were called the tax collectors. And this is why the Jewish people hated tax collectors, because they thought that they were traitors. And it's interesting, because there's a famous story in the, in, in the Gospels about Zacchaeus. Does everybody remember that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a li wee little man was he. I don't, are we allowed to sing that anymore? Is that politically incorrect? <laughs> He was a tax collector. I'll tell you, when he was converted, he said, Lord, if I've cheated anybody, I'm, I'm going to repay it and I'm going to double it. Uh, four times, I'm going to give it back to them. And Jesus says, well, we know for sure that salvation has come to this household. Why? What happened there? Well, Zacchaeus now, his, whereas before his God was money, now his God is the God of Israel. There's another tax collector that maybe you're not aware of. His name is Matthew. He wrote... He wrote the book of Matthew. 
Before he was an evangelist, he was a tax collector. It's funny how evangelists and money always seem <laughs> to just, you know, I'll leave that alone. I won't go any further with that. So look at folks. The solutions, and you need to understand this, the solutions to the problems of this world is Jesus Christ. This is why from this pulpit, we do not take up the cause of social justice causes. That's why we don't do that. Because we can, all of us, devote our entire life to social justice causes and nothing would happen. Nothing would change. Why is that? And I'll tell you why. Because what people need is a transformation of their hearts. That's why social justice causes are, uh, are not effective. And we've seen that through history. Humans, by nature, are, are sinful, self-centered, self-serving, selfish. That's who we are. Christ needs to reign in the hearts of every one of us before there can be transformation in our lives. Does everybody understand that today? And so the question is not, when is Jesus going to restore the kingdom? The question is this, is when is Jesus going to set up his kingdom in your heart? When will Jesus Christ reign in your life? Because that's what brings healing to marriages. That's what brings healings to families. That's what brings healings to communities. This is what brings healing everywhere. In fact, Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are Christ's disciples. Your love for each other. And the interesting thing, folks, about the Christian community, which, which in its day was so radical that nobody could really understand it. And in fact, it made Christianity suspect. People of mixed races were coming together and fellowshipping. What on earth are white people or black people or brown people doing with white people and, and yellow people and red people? What's going on here? What's going on? And it wasn't just a mix of races, but it was a, there was a socioeconomic issue as well. People from different backgrounds coming together as one, as one family. What happened? Hearts were transformed. And Paul says, in Christ is neither female, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. It's a whole new kingdom, my friends. And it's a kingdom that is established, not politically, but in the hearts of all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what brings healing. This is what brings hope. Now, let's move on. Verse 7. Jesus makes it clear that this is not to be our preoccupation. Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Everybody get that? So if it's not for us to know, why do so many TA preachers keep setting dates? And we see almost every, every religious group wants to set a date about the end of the world. And some of you, if you come from a, uh, not from a Roman Catholic background, but from a Jehovah's Witness background, you know that back at the turn of the last century, that was supposed to happen. And there were Pentecostals in the, in the 1930s who were selling all their possessions because they knew that Jesus was coming any day, and they are just getting ready. Some parents didn't send their kids to university because they said, well, what's the point spending all that money? What's the point spending all that time in university if Jesus is going to be coming back next year? And I see, I, I, in the 1980s, I, someone gave me a book. Oh, Pastor John, you have to read this book. It's the most amazing book you ever saw. And, uh, and it was 100 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return by 1988. And so I read it. Nothing new. Rehashed old ideas. But this person was sure. And of course, as you can see, it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you may have heard of Harold Camping. Has anybody ever heard of him? Back in, uh, in uh, at the beginning, well, the beginning of the last decade, um, he, made, he made a prediction that the end of the world was coming. When that didn't happen, then he, he said, oh, I made a mistake. I got some numbers mixed up, so he sets another date. And Jesus didn't come back that time. And then he set another date. 
say, you know what, I, I think, I think um, I, I'm using the wrong calendar. I've got to use the Eastern calendar. So it said another date. The third time, no show. Fourth time, no show. Fifth time, no show. So then, in a, in a private interview, he admitted that he no longer believed that anybody could know the time of the rapture or the end of the world, which is in stark contrast to his previously staunch position on the subject. You're just figuring this out now, Harold Camping. Have you ever read the Bible? You know, there's some people, that's all they focus on, is on the book of Revelation and Daniel, and then all of that discourse in Matthew. This is all they focus on. But Jesus is coming soon. Well, he is coming. He is coming. He added that he was not searching the Bible uh, anymore to find out when Jesus was coming. He was just searching the Bible to be more faithful in his understanding of Scripture. Well, it's about time, man. And he died two years later. So what should Christians preoccupy their time with? What should they be doing? Well, in Luke 19, verse 13, Jesus tells the servants in his parable to occupy, he says, occupy until I come. In the Greek, that word occupy, pragmatev sasthe, which means go into business until I return. In other words, do the Lord's business until I come back. Don't get caught up in that. No one knows the, the, the day. No one knows the hour. Not even the Son of Man. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. So what should we be preoccupying ourselves with? And there's one answer to that, and that is the Great Commission. Now, I think in our church, our church is smarter than the average church. Would everybody say amen to that? Sadly, 17%, only 17% of Christians actually know what the Great Commission is. Only 17% people. Astonishingly, only 17%. And the reason I say astonishingly is because the Great Commission was actually Jesus' last command to us, the last words to us. And what were those words? Well, the Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 version goes like this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all power in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, if you've been in any of our classes in the past, you know that this reflects, is it, actually some theologians would say that this was actually a recommissioning, that the first commission comes to us in Genesis chapter 1, where, Jesus, where, where God tells Adam and Eve that their job is to, to rule over the creation and, and to govern it and to advance the kingdom. And the reason Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth, it's a reflection of what we see happen in Genesis chapter 1. God created what? The heavens and the earth. And Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm the creator. D did you know that? Some people don't realize that. And again, some of you who've been here for any length of time, you've, you've heard me share that Genesis chapter 1, very, very suspiciously, has... Two letters in the middle of that first, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the Aleph Tav. Hebrew theologians and scholars have no idea why that Aleph Tav is there, but we know why it's there. Aleph Tav is the Hebrew version of the Alpha and the Omega. Who does Jesus say he is? The Alpha and Omega. There's Jesus right there. Genesis 1, verse 1. He is the creator. All authority is given to me. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples. Now, the Great Commission, in case you don't know, it is not just something found in the book of Matthew. As you're going to see in your small group tonight, we find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also in Acts. So that's what we're going to look at, our next verse. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying you and I have got a job to do. You and I have got the job of proclaiming the gospel. Now, the problem with so many churches now is that they no longer understand or see the importance of proclaiming the gospel. What is the gospel, by the way? The good news. Does everybody understand that? When, I, when you hear the word gospel, think good news. When you hear the word good news, think gospel. That's what it is. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. And every Sunday when you come to church here, you're going to hear a sermon about Jesus Christ. Whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ. Why? Well, as I've already said to you, the solution to the problems of this world are found in Jesus Christ. And we find Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. This is why it annoys me when I see Bible societies that are only handing out a gospel or just the New Testament. The whole Bible declares the glory of God. The whole Bible declares Christ. And so we declare Christ. And so what are we declaring? We're declaring this, the, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. We're, we're declaring the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We're declaring that God and man are reconciled through Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor Allen, what happened? How, how, come they, how come they had a falling out? Well, again, if you knew your Old Testament, then you would understand that in the New Testament. We find in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. What happened? They were kicked out of his presence. By the way, can I just remind everybody, when we talk about the Garden of Eden, we think of some paradise with exotic fruit. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, it doesn't matter. Here's what you really need to know about Eden. Eden is the very presence of God. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of Almighty God. And when sin entered in, then they were banished. Now, in our day and age, we don't understand the power of sin, the wickedness of sin, or as one preacher called it, the sinfulness of sin. We don't understand that. And so while we feel that, that we are, are fairer than God and kinder than God, and, and I would never send anybody to hell, that seems like such a barbaric thing. Of course you wouldn't, because you're sinful yourself. And because you don't understand the sinfulness of sin. We're talking about a holy God that cannot permit or allow sin to dwell in his presence. Why? What happens? Well, the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. We'd be consumed if we were in God's presence. He's a holy God. But thanks be to God, he sent, he sent his son that all who put their faith in him now are protected against the wrath of God. Is everybody getting this? This is the good news. Would you say this is the good news? In theological terms, what is it, Nick Hack? The propitiatory covering. Nick likes that, that phrase. The propitiatory covering. That's who Jesus is. He covers us, protects us. And within that protection, we experience the full orb of God's great love for us. Hallelujah. Isn't the, isn't the gospel wonderful? And the fact is, folks, we all understand that we are sinners. We all understand that. Even Bill Maher, in one of his monologues, went on to say that human beings are by nature wicked creatures. Bill Maher saying that, who hates God and hates the Bible. He recognizes, he understands it. John Piper, encouraging Christians to proclaim the gospel. And by the way, when we talk about preaching, that term preaching, it's, it, nowadays it's not used so much. They, most churches now talk about the teacher. Who's the teaching pastor? And it, it come to church for teaching. No, this, what you're hearing today is bona fide preaching. There's teaching and preaching. What does preaching do? Preaching declares or heralds. That's what preaching means. It's a heralding of the good news. It's the proclaiming that Jesus Christ has come to this world to save all who put their faith in him. 
This is what John Piper says. God did not ordain the cross of Christ or create the lake of fire in order to communicate what's insignificant. The death of the Son of God and the damnation of unrepentant human beings are the loudest shouts under heaven. That God is infinitely holy and sin is infinitely offensive and wrath is infinitely just and grace is infinitely precious and our belief and our brief life and the life of every person in our church and in our community, uh, this all leads to everlasting joy or everlasting suffering. So what are we proclaiming when we proclaim the good news? We're proclaiming that there is everlasting joy for all who put their faith in Christ. Now, there's some people who don't want to hear that. They don't like that preaching. They don't want to hear anything about hell. But Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. I have to talk about that. I don't like talking about it. I like to talk about other things. I like to talk about how God can help your golf score or how you can be a better athlete how you can be a better wife. And, and, and some, some pastors are even preaching on Sunday how being a Christian will even improve your sex life. It's absolutely absurd. Now, there's wonderful side benefits to being a Christian. But let's remember what it is that we're heralding and what the good news is. You know, the surprising thing is if you stood on the street corner with a sandwich board on, declaring that the end is near, repent, people will throw tomatoes at you. But if I went down the street and said, I have got the secret to having the best score better than Tiger Woods, if you believe in Jesus, then he'd get, a, he'd get people gathering around to hear the sermon. The problem is, folks, is we are blind to our, what our great need is, and our great need is Jesus Christ. Somebody say, amen. We believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Now, if you're going to start a movement to change the world, which Jesus was doing, what is this movement called? Well, before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. What would you do? Well, if it were me that, was, that had this responsibility, I'd gather around me uh, some top-notch, high-caliber people, right? People with high IQ, People are gifted, maybe people are wealthy, people are well-connected, good connections. But what does Jesus do? He gathers around him some t fishermen, uh, some hated tax collectors, uh, a zealot that is a, a political agitator, a thief, <laughs> some prostitutes, all the people you wouldn't choose to, to advance a movement. Now, think about this for a moment. Jesus, do you really want to advance your kingdom to the ends of the, uh, to the, ends of the earth? Are these really the guys, the people, the women that you're going to use for this cause? As you're going to see next week or in the next two weeks, that there's 120 of them gathered together. And these are, these are the ones. These are the ones called by God. These are the losers. They're not Pharisees. They're not educated. They're not, they're not top drawers. They're not famous. Billy Graham always wanted to get famous athletes or actors who, or singers who proclaimed to be Christian, and he'd get them to his rally because he was sure that if people heard Johnny Cash give his testimony, that they would become Christians too. <laughs> but here's Jesus with his ragtag group. How is it that this group could change the world, as Dr. Rodney Stark tells us? How could this be? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. You did ask that question, right? Yeah. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's... That's the way the job gets done. And you and I are called to be part of the spreading of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. You say, Pastor, now you can't, you can't give me any excuses now because I just told you all about the losers that Jesus called. So if God could use all those losers, he can use you. 
Thanks a lot, Pastor Alan. Just what I wanted to hear. Actually, the way I look at it, if God can use these losers, he can use me. Why? Because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in every believer. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you are truly converted today, if you're born again today, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians tells us this. Ephesians chapter 1, read it yourself. In fact, read all of Ephesians. It's a powerful, powerful statement about the work that God does in the life of the believer. You have the Holy Spirit at work in you, enabling you to share the gospel with anybody that God brings across your path. Is it easy? No, not, not always. But I can tell you this, with a simple little prayer, it's amazing what God can do. It's amazing what God can do. It's amazing what God can do. Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Wow. Now some are going to argue, and I hear this all the time, and boy does it annoy me. Some are going to argue that preaching Christ and sending out people to win the nations for Christ is a form of colonization. Anybody, anybody heard that? And therefore, it's bad, it's wrong, it's evil. Look it. There's nothing new under the sun. And Christianity has been under attack for 2,000 years, but it stood the test of time. Why? Because of the transformation that takes place in the hearts of people. I can tell you this, that... Those who have become Christians, and I mean true Christians, I'm not talking about cultural Christians. Everybody understands the difference, right? A cultural Christian says, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I was baptized, but their hearts have not been transformed. I, I, we've talked about that in the past. Nobody, nobody has their arm twisted behind their back. You must become a Christian. Say the sinner's prayer, I'm going to shoot you. That never happens. What happens? People become Christians because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, and they say, I need this, I want this. You see, for most of us, we grew up thinking that I have decided to follow Jesus, or I found Jesus. I went looking and I found him. How many know that that does not fit the biblical narrative? You didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. He came looking for you. Augustine called him the hound of heaven. Spurgeon used to love to call God the hound of heaven. He comes, he's coming after you, Amelia. <laughs> he's coming after you. And he does his work in people's hearts. So, this Christianity, is Christianity a form of colonization? Absolutely. In fact, Cross Church is one of heaven's colonies. Did you know that you belong to a colony? <laughs> Cross Church is a colony of heaven. This world's not our home. My, my citizenship is in heaven. That's my, that's my first citizenship. If people ask me what I am, I, I just say I'm a Christian. I don't say I'm a Canadian. I say I'm a Christian. Folks, listen. What, what you and I are called to do is to bring this message of the reign of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. We're living in a world that is desperate for peace, desperate for joy. We're living in an age and a day when people are more depressed than they've ever been. We're seeing more suicides among young people. And even those young people who are allowed to, who, to follow their, their psychological issues, of course, you can't say that anymore. You have to say, well, that, per, that kid thinks he's a furry. He's, he, he wears a tail. Has anybody seen people roaming around like that? And they believe that's, how, that's, that's their new identity. The wonderful thing about Christ is he tells us who our identity, what our identity is. And that's why we read in the Old Testament, in the beginning, God created the male and female. Why did he say that? I always wonder, why on earth did you have to state the obvious, God? Well, now I know, because people go crazy. Without God, we lose our minds. That's what, that's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Without the logic and the reason that comes from Christ, we lose our minds. So Acts, my friend, is all about the colonization 
or colonizing work of the Holy Spirit through the disciples of Christ. Only we don't call it a colony, do we? What we do is we call it the family of God or the church, the body of Christ. You now are citizens of heaven and, and you're a citizen of heaven because somebody who had the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them came and witnessed to you and shared the gospel with you. And maybe it was your mother, your father, maybe a friend at work, but somebody shared with you in the power of the Holy Spirit the good news that Jesus Christ can set you free from your guilt and from your shame and from your sin and that God can restore your relationship with Almighty God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then we read, I'm going to read this in closing. After saying all this, Jesus was taken up into a, a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into the heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Who are those white-robed men? Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing there standing or staring into heaven? And Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. Folks, there isn't much, uh, uh, hold on a minute, there is, there's much that we don't understand. There's much that we don't know or understand about the end times and about the coming of Christ. I have heard every theory and every single one of those theories about the end of times makes sense to me. It's, it's one of the things I'm cursed with, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's, that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. And that makes sense and that makes sense. So what do I do? Do I say, oh, well, I don't understand it. I'm going to quit. I'm just not going to. No. What, what does Jesus say? Occupy until I come. Stay in business. Keep working. Keep doing the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a broken world until I return. And so, folks, this is what Cross Church is about. In, in case you don't know, maybe you're new here, you know that Cross Church exists in order to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples here in Winnipeg and around the world. Our job is to proclaim Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And folks, that is what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. So in the victory, I'm going to close with this, the victory of reason, Rodney Stark, he, he really is advancing. Before he's even a Christian, he advances a revolutionary and a controversial and long overdue idea. And it's that Christianity and its related institutions are, in fact, directly responsible for the most significant intellectual, political, scientific, and economic breakthroughs of the past 1,000 years. But folks, that is not why we're Christians. We're Christians because people need to be born again, and we need to be born again, and we need to be saved, and we need to be made right with God. And thanks be to God, Alan Duncalf has been made right with God through Jesus Christ. Because I'm good, because I'm smart, because I'm talented, because of my high IQ, none of these things. It's because I put my faith, I humbly put my faith in Jesus Christ. What we see over the past thousand years, my friends, is the proof that what Jesus teaches is real. It's legitimate. Let me read this to you. Christian theology, Stark says, is that the very font of reason. Now, would you say that we're living in a day and an age where we have, there's no reason, no logic, no rhyme or reason? You have, your, you have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our different truths, and somehow we're supposed to muddle through all this? He says Christian theology is the very font. It's the fountain of reason. He says, while the world's other great belief systems emphasize mystery, obedience, or introspection, he says Christianity alone embraced logic and reason as a path toward enlightenment, freedom, and progress. My, my friends, I want you to understand something today. Because we are under attack constantly. For what we believe. We're told that we're lunatics, that we're infantile, that Christianity is a crutch. Has everybody heard that? 
But I want you to know there's some great, great minds, great thinkers, great scientists will tell you quite the opposite. What you have to do is you have to do some research. You have to, you have to put on your big boy pants and you, have to, and you have to start acting like an adult. Put away the childish things, as Paul says. Start acting like an adult. Start doing your research. Don't just listen to Bill Maher and say, oh, he said it must be true. I heard David Letterman said it. It's got to be the truth. Obama said it. Trump said it. It's got to be the truth. Folks, do your research. Study the scripture. Start reading. Start understanding that you have a reasonable faith, and it is a solid rock, and his name is Jesus Christ, on which you built your life. And when the storms of life come, you will stand firm through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Father, as we now prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, we pray that your will would be accomplished in our lives. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see that we are sinners in need of the forgiveness that you bring to us. And Father, that's why we're at the Lord's table this morning, because we believe and we are reminding each other, we're proclaiming to one another Christ has saved us, and we are part of the family of God. We're part of the colony called the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. So, Father, fill our hearts with joy this morning as we partake of communion and as we celebrate what Christ has done. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Amen. God bless you. for sinners if you're not a sinner you don't think you're a sinner it's not for you which is fine just observe but for those of us who know we are sinners we come to this table and we're reminded that our sins have been forgiven not just once but for all time the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient we don't need anything else. We don't need to add to it. Some people think, Pastor Allen, but you know, if I just could do some more good works, then I would be worthy to eat the bread and drink the cup. Folks, there's nobody that is worthy to eat the bread or drink the cup. We eat the bread and drink the cup remembering what Jesus has done for us because we have put our faith in him and we're celebrating that our sins are washed away. Folks, we need to be reminded this, of this fact as often as possible. Some of you have been hiding from God. Some of you have drifted away from the Lord. Some of you have sinned this past week and you're full of, of shame and guilt. I want you to, to know that Jesus Christ has cleansed you. Your sins are forgiven. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread after he'd given thanks and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. Let's take and eat it together, shall we? In the same manner, after Jesus had broken the bread, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Let's take it together, shall we? Hallelujah. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we want to say thank you now for your kindness to us, your generosity to us. You have been so good to us. You have reconciled us to the Father. And your shed blood is sufficient to wash away our sin until the day that we die and enter into your presence and are given glorified bodies. Father, let this truth fill our hearts with hope today and joy and peace, knowing that we have peace with God, not because we're good, but because we put our faith in Christ, and Christ is perfect. He fulfilled all the law of God. And so we have received not just eternal life, but we have received the righteousness of Christ. And folks, Father, that is why we celebrate communion, to rejoice and to be reminded that we have Christ's righteousness. Go with us from this place now, and may we go as a people full of the Holy Spirit, prepared and willing to share the gospel of, 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 the, of the glorious reconciliation Christ brings. Give us that joy and give us that, that motivation, knowing, Lord, that you're coming again. You're coming soon. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said it with me? Amen. Tell the person beside you, go tell someone about Jesus.